And welcome to WBAI and to Driving Forces, the weekly show that focuses on politics and policy, where we focus on the big issues in city, state, and national politics, and where you, you, our listeners, get to weigh in on what matters to you. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, back after my holiday break to see family in Chicago, raring to go, and as always, joined by the glorious vixen that's always mixing things up, Celeste katz Marston. I'm not really sure how to follow that up except to say, Happy New Year, Jeff. Happy New Year, Celeste. Did I miss anything while I was off? <laughs> uh, I, I didn't realize you'd become such a, a talented poet and lyricist, but uh, I appreciate that that ode to my uh, to my presence on the radio. But did you have a good vacation, Jeff? Did you actually vacation? Believe it or not, and our listeners should know this, I'm a workaholic. So even when I go on vacation, I still do work most days. I actually did try to do that. Um, went to Cleveland, Columbus, Milwaukee, Chicago, of course, and uh, just got back this past weekend. Uh, you know, I missed I missed listening to WBAI as much as I normally do while I do my workday here at home. Uh, you know, and I'm sure I've missed a lot of coverage, but I understand from what I had then followed up on, I was able to check out your episode from last week with uh, with our former colleague at the Daily News, and that was wonderful, Celeste. Yeah, that was good. We you know we missed you, Jeff. Of course, we missed you, but we did have a couple of good programs while you were away. Kind of held down the fort here with Reggie, and we had Larry McShane of the Daily News. I think that is the person you are referring to, a fan favorite, of course. We had Matt Troutman of Patch, uh, Grace Panetta of Insider, and Harry Siegel of the Daily Beast. So uh, a nice lineup, but it just wasn't the same without you, Jeff. Thank you. And I know there's a lot of news going on and we've got two fantastic guests today, but there is a lot of news. I mean, we would be remiss if we did not mention what has been dominating the news today. I mean, it is the one year anniversary of the Capitol insurrection, Celeste. Yeah, definitely was very interested to tune in this morning and listen to what uh, Vice President Harris and President Biden had to say about that. And uh, pretty strong words there from uh, from the president about his predecessor and about how he was being sort of sore about this and, and was the first president to really take uh, what President Biden says was a super active role in not only not wanting to accept the outcome of a free and fair election, but to actively encourage people people to to try to overturn it and and stage this insurrection so definitely very scary uh stuff there but the president coming out and and calling that out although not by name if i recall correctly he said he didn't want to yeah. make this a contemporary uh contemporary uh you know current moment dispute just wanted to sort of lay that out there and what was interesting was uh, seeing that Senator Lindsey Graham uh, on Twitter lashed out at Biden and Kamala Harris, basically accusing the Democrats of using this anniversary to attack the Capitol to resurrect a failed presidency, you know, which was interesting. And I know we've got our first guest on the line. We'll get to him in a minute. But very, very briefly, the other big news that's been going on uh, this week, Andrew Cuomo looks like he is being spared any criminal trials expected. He was expected to be in court on Friday on charges, but the Albany DA dropped the criminal complaint against him. And that follows two other uh, announcements by the uh, – uh, Westchester and Nassau County DAs that they would also not file charges against him. And we also have a new mayor 
uh, new city council, largely, uh, Celeste, I know you're very happy about this too, largely uh, uh, populated by women in the New York City Council. You never, while you were covering the city council on a daily basis, we never had that. Now we do. Oh, okay. We're just working on a little sound issue right now. But the other thing I'll just bring up, because we're going to get to us with our first guest, is the state of the state. New York Governor Kathy Hochul yesterday, she delivered her first state of the state address. The speech was considerably shorter than her predecessors. The audience, very small because of COVID. She cast broad strokes on how she would carry through New York during the pandemic and beyond. She opened up her remarks by saying this is a new day in New York and reminded those who were watching that with a new governor and a new New York City mayor, there would be less infighting that distracts them from doing their work. Basically, she had said the days of the governor of New York and mayor of New York wasting time on petty rivalries are over. So with that, let's just go right to our first guest. And, you know, someone that Celeste and I have known for years, Basil Smeichel is just one of the, I'm going to say, premier consultants in the city. He's a distinguished lecturer, director of the policy, public policy program at uh, the Roosevelt House Institute for Public Policy at Hunter College, has over a decade and a half of experience in higher education and 25 years dedicated to public service. If this weren't radio, you'd recognize his face from the small screen. He's regularly on MSNBC, CNN, and Bloomberg TV. And in the midst of racial unrest and a health care crisis brought on by the pandemic, Basil has become a leading voice for improved ballot access and against voter suppression and on criminal justice reform. Basil Smeichel, welcome to WBAI. It is really good to be here with both of you. Thanks so much for inviting me. I want to start off with Mayor Adams. He's coming into office at a time when COVID cases and hospitalizations are rising. He's resisting calls for remote learning. He's, he's kept the previous mayor's mandatory vaccination policy in place for a few months, urging worker uh, city agencies to bring their workers back. We're less than a week into his term. Your assessment about how he's doing so far. You know, it's interesting because it's, it's, it's less on the policy and more on the performance, my assessment. I, I my first reaction has been and is that he's very decisive, and that's important. It's important because New Yorkers broadly, you know, like their mayors to be larger than life. Um, we don't necessarily like ideological mayors, except that the only ideology and the only party that counts is that you're New York first, New York City first. Um, and voters, voters really like to see that. And even if the voter doesn't agree with you, they want to know where you stand. And there are going to be people who are concerned about uh, the back-to-school policy. There are going to be people who are concerned about continuing mandates. But at least you know how he feels, and he has been very clear about, uh, about, about his position. You could also see some of that in his sort of pushback against the business leaders, the banks, who said they're going to push this to their workers to stay at home, and his response was, well, you can't run New York City from your house. And, you know, that's to say that, look, you know, New York is a city that um, we're used to dealing with a lot of really tough issues, and we've been down before, but we need to come back, and he's going to be the person to bring, bring us back um, in a very bold way. I, I, so I think we can quibble about one can quibble about the policy, and we're certainly going to be continuing to talk about 
the uh, efficacy of of any of the any of what you you, you mentioned at the at the start. Uh, but I think what voters are going to see right off the bat is that he's firm and he's decisive, and that may give a lot of folks a lot of comfort about in his leadership. I think I think we're having a little more technical difficulties right now. It's less sound, so I'm sorry about that. We're trying to just resolve this. We will work on this for the next few minutes. But Basil, I'll just continue uh, with uh, with our questions. I re- uh, with you know one of the big challenges is going to be dealing with the New York City Council, where we have a large progressive uh, block that has uh, joined the City Council. And, um, you know, I think of just even the announcement today about putting police back on the subways, uh, which, of course, is going to concern people, even though the announcement that Mayor Adams had made with Governor Hochul involved that down the road they would be developing teams of social workers and medical professionals on the subways. Stepping up the presence of police on the subways may concern a number of people who feel that we need the police to pull back. The police should not be responsible for this. Where do you see the relationship going with the council? What are going to be those thorny topics over in his first 100 days even? If you remember the narrative of the mayoral campaign, and for full disclosure, I was running Ray McGuire's campaign through that cycle. But if you go back to the beginning of the election cycle, we spent a lot of time talking about the economy coming back, people being able to go outside, then the vaccine hit, and then we started to see a return to normalcy as we started to see an increase in crime, particularly in the subways and particularly targeted toward Asian American New Yorkers. And so the narrative of the race shifted very quickly, very sharply from the economy to crime, and it sort of fell right into uh, the former police officer, Eric Adams' uh, lap. And he was able to pivot very quickly as a result of that and took advantage of, of that moment to step in and say, listen, I'm the former police officer. I know how this stuff works. We can't be talking about defund police in the middle of a spike in crime. And you know what? Voters responded to that. You know, he got elected largely because of the way that he, he sort of pivoted toward um, uh, crime and, in a way, quality of life, which we didn't like hearing a lot about when Giuliani was mayor <laughs> because of the way in which he tackled it. And I think that really is the answer to your question, which is, you know, can Eric Adams solve the, the crime issue, reduce crime, be tough on crime, engage homelessness in a way that is humane, um, engage the, uh, all the questions around criminal justice reform and closing of Rikers? Can he tackle all of those things in a sound, decisive, but also humane way. And it remains to be seen whether he can do that if we start to see areas where it looks like he will not be able to to, to sort of be able to strike that balance. I think you will see a lot more tension with the city council, with Jamani Williams, for example, who's the public advocate, but is also running for governor. Um, And perhaps even the former mayor, who looks like he may run for governor, Bill de Blasio, I think you'll see some more tension there, and you may end up seeing tension between he and the governor around these issues. But if he can walk that line, um, I, I think it might solve the uh, what, what concerns some progressives may have, because the voters do want this. They do want to bring crime down. They want to see some strength from City Hall, but they, they also want to see it in a humane way. 
And I'm very glad that you mentioned Rikers because in the ne- in the next segment we'll be talking with Joanne Page from the Fortune Society about this story that I want to ask you about too. This past weekend, front page story, major story in the New York Times about the dysfunction and violence at Rikers. What role should Eric Adams play as mayor? Because he has appointed a commissioner, but you know we've we've had a number of commissioners. But is what responsibility should he have as mayor in cleaning up Rikers? You know, to me, and, I, and I'm actually, interestingly enough, going to reflect on some of the research of my students very recently on this ish, on this very issue. Um, so shout out to the Hunter students in the capstone class. Um, but the, the, but what's, what's really fascinating to me about this is that there, there are, you know, all of these questions about closing, reestablishing smaller jails, one in each borough, and so on. But, you know, one of the things that, you know, still is a sort of common thread through all of these are the social programs to end recidivism, to, to bring down recidivism rates, and 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 also again to sort of rethink, you know, who who goes to Rikers and and why, and are there other ways, other ways that we can sort of take them out of that path and find alternatives, um, as opposed to just thinking about how do we close a jail and replace it with another jail. And so one of the things that I think Eric Adams could do is, is actually start to have some of those conversations. To, you know, there are so many great people that are on his administration that have been in the nonprofit community um, that have t- thought about, talked about, worked on issues affecting, involving people of color in their communities, particularly dealing with families of folks um, who are who are coming home and what what challenges they are experiencing? You know, we got to start thinking about that. I'm saying that, knowing that he himself has talked about he Eric Adams himself has talked about, you know, some version of not solitary confinement. He called it something else, right? Um, uh, mm-hmm. But um, you know, he's saying to himself and saying to us, what happens when a uh, someone behind uh, someone who is in, in, in Rikers attacks a guard. Um, how do we deal with that? And those are very real issues. There is no question about it. But I think from from the stamp, so, so he's looking at it from two standpoints. One, he's got to protect his staff, right? His employees, those members of the uh, of the uh, of the corrections correction officers, uh, and and the, the, those union members. But but at the same time, there is this massive movement to try to do something different. And, you know, he seems like he's a person who has thought through these issues. He certainly brought on people on his staff who dealt with these issues, lean on them to try to, to try to get some movement here. I think that might be an early victory, but the longer that it continues, the more deaths we see of, of folks behind bars, you know, the, when you talk about challenges from the council, you're going to see a lot more louder, a lot louder voices coming from the council um, in a very short period of time because the, the challenges that are there now are not going to go away overnight. We're talking to Basil Smeichel here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live via WBAI.org. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston here with Jeff Simmons. And I'm sorry that we just treated you to a, a sneak peek into what life is like in the world of remote radio broadcasting. But uh, Basil wanted to ask you a question about since we live in this sort of eternal election cycle now, um, you know, just curious as to what you see uh, 
uh, on the horizon. One of the things I was thinking about uh, with Mayor Adams and Governor Hochul putting out this joint uh, this joint statement is that they've talked about working together. Um, you know, do you think that Kathy Hochul is is looking, you know, in a good position right now to sort of keep carrying um, uh her, her newfound job or unexpected job uh, into parlaying that into a full term? Or do you think that Tom Swazi presents any sort of uh, threat to her? What do you see on the landscape there? Yeah, well, it's really interesting dynamic now, right? Because she talked about this and we were all witness to this, this, this incredibly tense relationship between Bill de Blasio and Andrew Cuomo, right? Where in many ways he's Andrew Cuomo would often win because governors win. <laughs> you know, cities are creatures of the state, so governors often win. And But what's interesting about this dynamic is that, in some ways, Kathy Hochul needs Eric Adams more than vice in part because of the fact that she's known better upstate than she's downstate. But what you saw early on is she was down here right away after she became governor. She made some very good, she did some really good press hits. She's made some strong allies. She's actually really good at retail politics, far more so than Andrew Cuomo was. And um, and I think she's developed this kind, this great working relationship with the, with the new mayor that she has to find a way to exist into the primary. Um, I, you know, it, it becomes a little difficult for someone like a Tom Swazi or even Jamani, who I think actually has a, a lane as a progressive to run, but it's harder for somebody like a Tom Swazi to then come around and say, well, well, she hasn't done anything or she didn't do that well or she didn't do that well. Ultimately, he has to be able to articulate why you take out a, a sitting governor who herself is history-making, but who just got there. How do you, how, what is the rationale to take her out? And I don't, I don't see that yet. Um, but he doesn't have much time to, to sort of really craft that and raise money around it. And so let's not forget the fact that she's been an incredible fundraiser up until this point. And so um, that rationale becomes really important. I don't know that it's there yet. I don't know that he will get it. Um, but just one of the little perks or quirks of the state party, having been executive director uh, at one point, is that, um, you know, they may find a way to get him on the ballot nonetheless. You know, in theory, you don't get the signatures, you don't get on the ballot, but the party historically has found ways for Democratic candidates to, if there's few of them, to get on, to make it onto the ballot. Um, so he may end up challenging her, you know, in that primary, even if he doesn't have the resources to have gotten on the ballot on his own. So having said that, um, he's going to, like everybody else, will have to articulate a rationale, and it's a really hard narrative to craft when you have a governor who's making history right now. Basil Smeichel, I wish we had more time because I have a million more questions I would like to ask you about this. But until next time, and we will have you back on the program, where can people find out more about you and your work? Well, I am um, at Basil Smeichel PhD on the Twitter machine. Um, And uh, you could always find me at Roosevelt House at at, uh, Hunter College at CUNY. Um, my email, basil.smichael at hunter.cuny.edu. Always um, look forward to talking to folks on policy issues. Basil Smichael, thanks so much for joining us today here on Driving Forces on WBAI. You got it. Take care, everybody. 
And if you are just tuning in, this is Driving Forces on WBAI 99.5 FM, New York. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, joined as always by my wonderful co-host, Celeste Katz-Morriston, to talk about the latest in politics and policy. Just talking with Basil Smeichel about the state of politics in our city and state. And every time we're lucky enough to have a guest with us like Basil on Driving Forces to talk about these issues, we know it is because of you, because of you, our listeners, are, uh, and with your continuing support. I mean, we're only able to keep bringing you this kind of information, these conversations, because of your help. We're going to get to our next guest in just a minute or two, but before that, we do want to spend a minute to remind you about our recently I say new, recent, our ongoing campaign, our Tower Fund campaign, because we still do need your help. Absolutely. And and the reason why we've talked about this on programs during December, the Tower Fund is pretty new, but it continues. Basically, here's the deal. It costs $17,000 a month, $17,000 a month to uh, pay the rent on our broadcast tower, our antenna at four times square. So just to stay on the air with a clear signal costs us over $200,000 a year. And that's a lot. We are a non-commercial, non-profit station. We are uh, we are entirely dedicated to free speech radio, but to do that, we need your help. Please go to WBAI.org, WBAI.org today to support the Tower Fund. So just a short while ago, we talked with Basil Smeichel about Rikers Island and what Mayor Adams should or could do to clean up Rikers. This story, if you have not read it in the New York Times that I referenced, should make all of us very angry. It described the rampant violence, dysfunction. It also revealed that uh, many vital correction officer posts were going uncovered, allowing violence to perpetuate. Now, one of the organizations I have been working with, this is full disclosure, is the Fortune Society. It's a nonprofit founded in 1967 by David Rothenberg, who are listeners on WBAI know very well. The Fortune Society is a nonprofit, remember, nonprofit organization that serves and advocates for formerly incarcerated individuals and people with criminal justice involvement. And this past weekend, I talked extensively with Joanne Page, the president and CEO of the Fortune Society, about that time story and what can be done to remedy the longstanding issues. And so I asked if she would come on and talk with us about this. But because I work with them on a daily basis, for the most part, for the next uh, segment, I'm going to step aside for this interview while Celeste takes over. Hopefully the uh, the technology spirits will be helping us out with that one, and I will be able to stay on the air with you. But we are going to start out by just telling you a little bit about our next guest, Joanne Page. She has more than 45 years of experience in criminal justice, with the last 32 years leading the organization, the Fortune Society. Under her stewardship, it has become a pioneer in assisting formerly incarcerated people to reintegrate into society. It has a $35 million annual budget, staff of approximately approximately 300, more than half of whom are people who were themselves formerly incarcerated. And the organization serves more than 8,000 people annually through a range of programs, including supportive housing, mental health services, education, employment services, substance abuse treatment, counseling, and more. Joanne is a graduate of Yale Law School. She's a former defense attorney, and she's a frequent speaker at conferences about alternatives to incarceration, housing, and criminal justice issues. So without further ado, Joanne Page, welcome to driving forces. I am so glad to be on this station because I am appalled by Rikers Island and the fact that it is so much more dangerous 
than anything that I've seen in my 32 years. So we cannot have posts uncovered because that creates a Lord of the Flies situation where it is predator or prey. And when we are pouring thousands of people out on the street who know bitterly that they are responsible for their own protection because they cannot turn to law enforcement to protect them. Uh, we are advocates of closing Rikers, but there are human beings on Rikers, and post-coverage is imperative for safety. I am a child of immigrants. I have a work ethic. I am awed, appalled, stunned by the correction officers union on protecting miscreants, no-shows, rip-off artists, and not protecting the good correction officers who are doing their job. So, Joanne, let me, considering everything that you just said, let me start out with the, the easy question, which is, how did Rikers Island get this bad? What, what happened? I think COVID exacerbated a situation. But when half the workforce doesn't show and posts are left uncovered, uh, chaos ensues. So the place was better run, but the correction officers union is a force of disruption and violence. And I'm just stunned by how they have chosen to protect the persons who are not coming to work, the persons who expose their sister and brother officers to risk. And I am calling on Mayor Adams to impose the same standards of good police work on correction officers because there are solid people, but he would not stand for AWOL people. We're talking to to Joanne Page of the Fortune Society here on Driving Forces on WBAI New York. And Joanne, I want to stay on that point because I think that's very interesting. And we have talked about Rikers Island on this program many times, but we haven't. I, I don't think we've focused that much on this point that you're making right here. Why is there or why has there developed a different standard for conduct uh, among police officers and among correction officers? Where do you see that divide uh, beginning or being allowed to continue? I think that the union is a force for poor coverage and miscreant behavior and is a powerful force. No, well, the, the PBA is a powerful force. The SBA, the you know, there there are police unions that have considerable influence in this city. Why should corrections be different or have more influence? Is it because people can't see what's going on the same way they can see it on the street? I think because the values are different for corrections and neglect and Rikers is a neglected population. But if the mayor is going to create a safe New York City, the consequence 
of thousands of people who have learned the bitter truth that they are not protected by law enforcement is unconscionable and is hitting our, our poorer communities most desperately. I think that when Mayor Adams considers law enforcement, he needs to create, he needs to put equal attention to the competence and coverage of correction officers because they are the back end of the system and they are neglected. And what what is your feeling on the pre-existing relationship or the historical relationship between Mayor Adams and the Corrections Union? Do you think it's been uh, friendly, uh, adversarial? How do you think it'll influence things going forward? You know, I think that he is a union man, and the union is important to him. But I think and I hope that he is not going to have a tolerance for the union creating unsafe conditions on Rikers Island and protecting. Uh, I think that he is a work ethic guy and should be appalled by this work ethic that leaves posts uncovered. And I think that he needs to have a laser focus on the safety of Rikers Island and the post coverage by any means necessary because the commissioner cannot leverage it from inside. He needs to hold correction officers to the same standards that he holds police and the union be damned. And in terms of how Rikers Island and how prisons function. There's kind of a disconnect here in some way. We are looking at endless accounts, and we mentioned the one in the New York Times earlier on uh, in in the segment, but we are seeing no shortage of reports that essentially Rikers Island doesn't work. It's broken. It's dangerous. People are getting hurt, getting sick, worse. Yet it costs, supposedly, according to the New York City Controller, oh, $550,000. And okay, so why? Where is that? Where is that money going? And why? Why is it that way? Is this is this akin to what we see where we have children in New York City schools where we pay a much higher per student uh, expenses, yet we do not see the same performance as in other uh, other school systems? Is where is the money going? You know, we we are paying for a half no show workforce with infinite sick leave and with the union protection for no show. We are, you know, the laser focus is that posts need to be covered with competence and consistency or you have chaos. And I'm, I'm appalled and questioning the union protection of no-show workers to the detriment of, you know, there, there are heroic correction officers who worked day by day through the pandemic and take their work seriously and passionately. Um, you know, my fortunate experience has been, has been uh, the correction officers who care really matter. But there are people, uh, posts need to get covered. I mean, that is black and white. 
posts need to get covered. People need to expect that their physical protection will be done by correction officers. And that is black and white. That is black and white. And I think the union has abdicated its responsibility for safety at Rikers Island. And I'm, I, I'm innocently questioning that set of values. Why protect miscreants and not protect good people doing their job? So in terms of, and obviously we know that this is not something that gets solved uh, in a day, in a month, maybe in a year, and it certainly doesn't get solved on a radio program in a couple of moments. But what do you think are some things that could be done proactively right away to sort of to sort of address this, to at least alleviate some of the problems, if not um, solve them outright? So I am laser focused on coverage of posts, because if posts are not covered, people will resort to violence to protect themselves. I think that the mayor needs to take on the correction officers that are miscreants and hold them accountable to doing their job and guarantee every post is covered at every time by competent correction officers. I think that it is laser simple that if you don't cover the post, Lord of the Flies ensues. Do you think that this is uh, sort of a bad apple spoiling the bunch type of dynamic? Or do you think that this is a matter of widespread corruption, widespread disregard for, for rules and for the safety of people who are housed at Rikers Island? Well, I think it's widespread disregard fomented by the union because half the workforce doesn't show up. I think that we should emphasize strength and look at the people who have valiantly covered their posts. And I think that we should demand nothing less from correction officers and support them in it. But every post needs to be covered Every post needs to be covered with competence uh, because chaos will ensue. And I think that the mayor needs to establish that standard for correction. And they are already good people, Mm -hmm. but they need to be reinforced. I wish we had more time, as always, to talk about this, and we will continue to discuss Rikers Island on this program, as we have many times in the past. But for now, where can people find out more about you and about the Fortune Society on the issue of incarceration? So our website is fortunesociety.org. Uh, we, uh, we, we, we welcome public speaking. Uh, we work with uh, Jeff to get the voice out there. Uh, we applaud the Bragg, Bragg reforms. Um, we are on social media. Okay, wonderful. Joanne Page of the Fortune Society, thank you for joining us here today on WBAI. Really appreciate it, and Happy New Year. Thank you so much for this opportunity because Rikers is worse than... I have experienced it in my lifetime and cannot be so.
Thank you. So you're listening to Driving Forces with uh, me, Jeff Simmons, on WBAI, New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. And my wonderful co-host, Celeste Katz-Marston, just completed her interview with Joanne Page of the Fortune Society. We're going to open up the phone lines now. By the way, one thing I do want to bring up, uh, Joanne just mentioned about the uh, the Bragg Initiative that she was referencing the Manhattan District Attorney announcing this week that he was not going to move ahead uh, with prosecuting low-level crimes. Uh, that is something where we're going to have to see how that uh, shakes out with uh, the views of our new mayor. Is that something he's going to endorse? But we're going to take your call shortly. Here's the number to call, 212-209-2877. Once again, that number is 212-209-2877. Give us a call. Let us know what's on your mind. And we're going to take a short break and leave you with just a bit of Stevie Wonder.
Welcome back to WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. You're listening to Driving Forces. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston here once again with the one and only Jeff Simmons. And we have just invited you to call in and you have heard the call. The number is 212-209-2877, 212-209-2877. Before we get to your calls, just one more very, very quick reminder. Please support the Tower Fund. If you like listening to this program, if you like listening to this station, and there is a lot to like, I think, about both of them, please check it out. We are non-commercial, non-corporate, listener-supported free speech radio, WBAI.org. Please support the Tower Fund. And by the way, your contribution is tax-deductible. So we're going to go to the phones right now. I think we have our first caller on the line, WBAI. You are on the air. What's your name? Where are you calling from? This is David uh, Dave from Brooklyn. Hey, happy uh, new year. I would like you to say something about uh, the panelists there, about the possibility of doing more in terms of getting jobs for people rather than locking them up and paying a huge amount of money to maintain jails and prisons. Uh, Rather than jails and prisons, jobs for people, and they... Many of them won't get into trouble with the law if they have a job and uh, they have a proper education and things that we really need to have uh, an impact on the quote-unquote crimes that locks people up in jails and prisons all over New York and the rest of the country. So I would appreciate you talking about that. And uh, as someone who's been involved in education for many years mm-hmm. and uh, uh, ran the uh, flight program at Wingate High School and had many people who told me that they would have been drug dealers if they hadn't been in my program. And today they're working on six-figure jobs as pilots <laughs> all over the world. So it can be done. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your call. And you raise a good point. And, you know, it's a little of the reverse, but one of the things that the governor announced yesterday, Celeste, during the state of the state was the jails to jobs program. That was one of her initiatives. I mean, there were a lot. This was this book she put out in addition to her half hour speech was about several hundred pages. But this program would improve reentry into the workforce and reduce the recidivism and focus on. Uh, people who've been previously incarcerated by providing them with education, resources, and other opportunities. So, Les. so let's get to the next phone call. Uh, welcome to WBAI. You are on the air. What's your name and where are you from? Hi. You hi, you're on the air. Oh, hi. How are you? This is Italiano from Riverdale. Uh, there's a lot hi, of what's happening. On... I mean, yeah, hello. Oh, yep. Go for it. What's on your mind? Oh, okay. Um, I think that. Uh, low-level crimes, I don't know at what level it's going to draw. They'll draw a line in the sand. But I think in the near future, you're not going to see people go to jail for low-level crimes or things like this. Like you said, they'll focus on giving people a a chance to uh, go to work or do programs to better themselves from where they're at. Like you'll see things with their credit score. You'll see things, the social score. 
I think that things are going to move in that direction more, like a home gel with a with a with an ankle bracelet. Uh, I think you're going to see a lot of that happen by 2030 and definitely by 2050. I mean, this is the long-range plan by the United Nations. Uh, it's mentioned even in their in their uh, plan for the world. So that's my little take on it. I think it's it's, it's going to change. You're not going to see places like Rikers because a lot of this is they want to get rid of these kind of jobs as well. You know, uh, the, the the guards and all this other stuff. It's a mess. Besides expensive. Right. Um, well, thank you. Well, you, know, and, you know what the budget is for the retirees, just for the civil service workers in New York City? It's $6 billion. That was a New York Post story. And rightly so. They worked for it. But it's $6 billion to pay benefits, and, re- and it's going to go up to $11 billion in the next five years. All right. Thank you. Right. Thank you very much for your call. And I, I think that there are, are some good points there. I, I think that that's something we can talk about on this program, I'm sure. And, and there's a lot to say and to uh, think about and write about there as well is sort of what is the future of incarceration? Are we going to see, in fact, that that this collapses? I'm sure that there are people out there, and I would tend to think some of those people listen to WBAI who believe that, you know, there is a, sort of a, a prison industrial complex, so to speak, that would advocate very heavily against sort of ending incarceration as we know it, Jeff. You know, the thing that's going through my mind as our caller just weighed in and you just spoke is the word incarceration, because what I've been doing this week is finally reading the new Jim Crow. I'm not sure if you had had ever read it, Celeste, by Michelle Alexander. And it it basically has early on defined incarceration is not just being in prison, but it is all, you know, Every All of the obstacles and challenges that people also face beyond that. It is also probation. It is also parole. It is not just being behind bars. So it's a much broader uh, portrait. And, you know, and these are issues that are not going to end anytime soon. And, 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 and it's, it's just an incredible book. I'm, I'm so upset that I did not read it when it first came out. But it, working with Fortune Society, I thought I want to know more about this and understand it better from other people's perspectives. Let's uh, get to our next call, Celeste. Yeah, WBAI, you're on the air. What's your name and where you're calling from? Am I on the air now? You are. Okay, Ricky also known as the Phantom, calling from Brighton Beach. My question is, why don't they have communal farms for the people and the homeless uh, situation and also take the people out of the Nazi prisons and put them on nice farms and have them feed the... They don't have to be slave farms. You can use the example of the kibbutzes from Israel and they also have them in New Zealand. And the very fact that nobody ever, ever thinks of coming up with communal farms for the people, and only me, kind of stuns me. How lame the American people are. My God in heaven. And, 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 and to continue on the same subject, mm-hmm. I met people from New Zealand when I was in Australia, and they tell me, oh, yes, 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 we have these communal farms. In, in New Zealand, and the government supports them. And I said, really? And I said, why does the government in New Zealand support these communal farms? And they said, well, they want to give the people a choice of an alternative lifestyle. And that's what okay. they want in America. Oh, thank okay, you well, very thank much you. for your call. Thank you. 
Thank you. And of course, Celeste, next time you're on Australian radio, you could also bring that up. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, look, alternatives to incarceration are definitely going to be a big part of this discussion. I'm not sure that given the sort of uh, structure and function of New York City, that large scale uh, uh, communal farms are going to be the answer. If you're talking about establishing something where there's space to do that, you'd be talking about taking people ostensibly further away from their homes, which has also been an issue with uh, incarceration. I think we're also talking about short term versus long term uh, incarceration, but I believe we have one more caller. If I'm not mistaken, maybe we can try to get to that call very quickly. WBAI, you're on the air. What's your name and where you're calling from? Real quick, it's Russ up in White Plains. Uh, the Italiano, instead of worrying about six billion dollars for retirees who go out and spend it, he should think about six to sixty-two billion that Jeff Bezos just collected during the pandemic. And Celeste, I was a little concerned that Joanne Page. I don't know how many times she called officers miscreants, but she badmouthed the union and half of the membership calling them miscreants when her entire client base is a bunch of miscreants and dregs, okay? So I don't get where she, where she gets off on badmouthing the unions and you letting her do this. That union may be using this pandemic to, to make points, but the <clears throat> teachers' union is doing the same thing. Okay. Let me ask you on a, on a separate thing, okay, on attorney, the district okay, attorney. Okay, I'm really not liking the tone here. Okay, frankly, yeah. we have people come on this Russell. program who have different <laughs> points of view, okay, and we try to engage in a civil, serious conversation. And I'm, I really, I appreciate everybody who calls in. I appreciate everybody who listens to this program. What I do not appreciate is being shouted out on the radio. And we're just not going to have that on this program, Jeff. Yeah, and I was going to say the same thing, but not as eloquently as you. And with that, we're going to have to wrap up the show anyway in the next few moments. And you look, I know, having worked with Joanne Page, I think she... That, Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back, Jeff. Um <laughs> Yeah, I think she's fantastic, you know, and look, yeah, I'm biased because I work with them, but I've also followed her work for years. And I know this is an issue that's extremely important to her, but not just to her, but to the people that she works with. I know it's also important to a number of the people who've gone to the Fortune Society for support and help. And and I'm going to leave it at that because I know we have to wrap up the show uh, in the next minute or two. And we just also I did not want to forget I when I left to go on vacation, I was glad that we were doing well with the tower uh, fund. And I came back and I heard that we did well, but not as well as we could. And that's why we keep bringing it up because we're just extending it for a few more weeks for that important reason. That's to fund our radio tower. That's so you can hear Celeste when her connection's working. So we need you. She's going to kill me for that one. But that's why, that's why we do need you as much as possible to just step up and donate if you can to be able to support WBAI. Again, go to, go to our website or go to tower.wbai.org or you can even just go to the WBAI.org website and you'll see it right at the top. It'll tell you why we need this support. You can also give us a call and you could donate at 212-209-2950, Celeste. Yeah, it only takes a minute. It is a tax-deductible donation, $25 or more. You become a member of the station. You can vote. You can be involved in important policy decisions. WBAI.org. Jeff, do we know what's on what's on deck for Sunday, or are we still, uh, are, are we still working on that one? 
I'm still working on half of the show, although I was hoping they were going to email me during this show to let me know. But I will tell you one thing I'm trying to do in some of the episodes I'm hosting of City Watch Sundays at 10, including this coming Sunday, is introduce you, our listeners, to some of the new council members. You may have followed their campaigns. Maybe you did not. But I think it's important for you to get to know their position. So last weekend I had on Lynn Shulman from uh, from Forest Hills. uh, And this Sunday at 10 o'clock, I'll have on Kristen Richardson Jordan. She is a new representative of the council in the 9th district in Harlem. She is a self-described revolutionary. We'll talk with her about her agenda for reform. And next week, Celeste and I will be not here. We will not be here. We'll be preempted next week, but we'll be back on the 20th, Celeste. Yeah, we are looking forward to that. We're going to have some great programming, cooking up some great guests, and uh, hopefully more great calls. But for now, if you missed any part of the program, we upload every edition to SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher, so you can subscribe and never miss a program. Don't forget to check us out on Twitter and Facebook, too, at Driving Forces. Jeff, so great to have you back. Thank you, Celeste. I'm very glad to be back, and I want to wish our listeners a happy and healthy and safe new year. And we will see you in two weeks back here on the radio. Have a great day. of Driving Forces here on WBAI New York. Every week, Jeff Simmons and I work to bring you the best conversations about politics and public policy in the greatest city in the world. But here's something you may not know. It costs $17,000 a month to pay the rent on our broadcast tower at Four Times Square. That's right, $17,000 a month just to stay on the air for you. That's why we're asking for your help. Please go to towerfund.wbai.org and give as generously as you can to help keep free speech community radio alive. It's easy to donate and it only takes a minute. Every donation helps WBAI stay on your FM dial with great programming about current events, music, culture, the arts, and much more. We appreciate your support. Please go to towerfund.wbai.org today and show your support for the best in free speech radio. Because the one thing a radio station doesn't need is a silent night.